Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Noah Coburn, professor of anthropology at Bennington College. Under Contract is about the hidden workers of America's foreign wars, third country nationals who, while not serving in their country's military, still work to support the American war effort. These men and women serve as laborers, cooks, logisticians, engineers, and security guards. They bear the burden of service in a war zone with the hopes of good pay, but are sometimes, maybe even often, disappointed. Professor Coburn explains in this book how they come to be in America's wars, why they want to sign on to a contract, how America's government incentivizes and perpetuates the contracting system, and what that means for the world, both in the present and future. In our talk, we discussed how Professor Coburn came to this project, his personal experience in Afghanistan, what it means to be a contractor, and how contracts are established, as well as what happens to these contractors when they no longer have America's wars to fight. Thank you for joining us here uh, on New Books, the New Books Network, New Books and Anthropology channel, Professor Coburn. I hope everything is uh, doing well. You're doing well in Vermont and that it's not too chilly over there. Thanks so much, Jeff. It is a little chilly over here, in fact, but I'm happy to be here and happy to be chatting with you today. Yeah, great. So let's dive right into it. We're talking about your new book, Under Contract, The Invisible Workers of America's Global War. And it's a very deeply researched book. It took you to several countries and really kind of hit on some of your background and expertise previously. So I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself and your work to uh, us and to me and our and my listeners, and as well as maybe telling us a little bit about how you came to this topic and a bit about the research you did uh, to write the book. Absolutely. Well, my path towards this book hasn't been a very straight one. I'm an anthropologist and originally went to Afghanistan, um, I guess about 14 years ago now, uh, and was looking at the role of guilds in local politics. And one of the things that we don't really remember is 14 years ago, things in Afghanistan had actually stabilized quite a bit, and there was still a bit of an insurgency in the South. But while I was there, the, the war really started back up and started to creep northwards. So while my original research in Afghanistan was much more about local politics, I, I began to increasingly look at and engage with the ongoing war as my friends and the people I was living with in Afghanistan were doing the same. Um, so after writing a book about a, a group of potters in Afghanistan, I increasingly I moved towards um, another study where I started looking at uh, – one large U.S. military base, Bagram Airfield, really in the middle of the, the country. And I wrote about a, a, a series of things. But one of the things I wrote about was how uh, local Afghans perceive the base and how the base perceived local Afghans and a lot of the disconnects there. Uh, and in the course of chatting with Afghans, one of the things they would say is, oh, the Americans do this, the Americans do that. And then when you actually 
go onto Bagram Air Base, though, as an anthropologist, you stand there and you look around and there's some Americans, but there's also a lot more Nepalis and there's Indians and there's Turks and there's other South Asians. And really what we think of as a U.S. military base in Afghanistan is inhabited by all of these contractors who are called, referred to oftentimes as third country nationals. I just became really interested in what what their experience of the war was, because they're really something that um, I think has been lost in the shuffle somewhat. And there's been a good, uh, some really interesting books written about contractors uh, in the past. Um, Most of those contractors, and I think in the American consciousness, though, are white contractors from America or Europe. Um, And really, that's only the upper tier of contractors. Below them, there are literally hundreds of thousands of other contractors um, that are currently fighting our wars around the globe. Um, And so that really just that moment, that sort of looking around at Bagram Air Base triggered what ended up being a multi-year project that really sent me around uh, to a lot of different places trying to find these uh, people and trying to get a better sense of what their experience of that conflict was. It's it's uh, it's a little funny. Uh, I chuckled a bit back there when you mentioned um, that their rel- Afghanistan is relatively stable in 2005 when you were there. That's actually when I deployed there for about six months as a Persian linguist while I was in the army, and uh, it was it's, it was pretty shocking just a year later to hear. You know how different things really became. There was definitely an escalation there in 2000, end of 2005 and 2006, where the environment just became very, very different. Um, and 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 I also had a bit of experience myself as a contractor in Iraq, and so it was interesting to read, as you mentioned, some of the different populations that that we have working on these different bases. So, you know, um, we obviously have that former military guys in Blackwater and whatnot that we think of. And maybe some people know about the construction workers for KBR. But as you mentioned, those tend to be mostly Americans or or American permanent residents. So who are all these other third country nationals and and what countries do they come from and what kind of work are they doing on these military bases? Well, it's a fascinating question and it's a real mix on both a methodological and a conceptual level, I started in Nepal. And one of the reasons I started there is because Nepal has a long tradition of so-called Gurkha uh, recruits who joined the British Imperial Army and continue to serve in the British Army today. And part of that post-colonial legacy has translated into a practice where a lot of these Gurkhas move into private security contracting. So a lot of the guards you find at U.S. embassies in Baghdad and Kabul and other places around the world are actually guarded by uh, retired Nepali Gurkhas. But one of the things that happened is Nepalis have been very adept at marketing this sort of image of the legendary uh, Gurkha And so as a result, a lot of non-Gurkha Nepalis are hired to do private security contracting. And I was very interested in what that that said about U.S. imperialism as opposed to earlier versions of imperialism. And so on a conceptual level, I I sort of began there. But so that's one very defined subgroup where Nepalis really dominate the private security contracting um, industry of of, uh, non-white 
industry. Um, but from there, I moved on to look at other groups. And so, for example, as you pointed to, a lot of construction work is done particularly by Turkish firms. So I ended up interviewing a lot of architects and engineers that were uh, came from Turkey. Uh, a lot of labor comes in from India to do the actual construction. A lot of the management is done by Pakistani accountants. Um, so I moved, I began really with these private security contractors, but then ended up looking at everybody from the cooks and the cleaners to uh, the uh, gentleman who worked in the uh, baking facility for ISAF that did all of the baking um, on a daily basis um, and, and really tried to understand how those different categories interacted and how they were perpetuated. That sounds like you had quite a lot of work to do. So how did you, how did you run find all these people and interview them and, and what was the research process like? Well, it, it certainly wasn't easy. It was uh, snowball sampling at its finest. I, I had a lot of contacts in Afghanistan, so I knew a lot of people at the edges of these industries. Um, and then it really was just a question of me uh, going to the different places and relying on some of these contacts and meeting one person who worked for a certain company and then uh, using their contacts to find other people. So one of the interesting things was I really did uh, this research, uh, a lot, I followed people who worked for certain companies because that was a quite effective way to do it. So once I had met a couple people who worked for DynCorp, I was able to find more and more people who worked for DynCorp. Um, and jumping from one company to another was, was somewhat difficult. But for me, I think one of the things that's both fascinating about uh, the practice of this type of contracting, but also presents, I think, a real question for anthropology as it goes forward is when we have these projects that are necessarily multi-sided, how do we organize that research? How do we support that research? So one of the things that I ended up doing was that some of the Nepalis, uh, I went and visited them and spent time with them in their homes in Nepal. I also then spent time uh, at their workplaces in Afghanistan in a few cases and finally, I spent some time in uh, Paharganj in uh, the neighborhood in New Delhi, where a lot of these workers who are looking for work go um, and uh, where they try to get visas, where they try to get contracts. So there's this whole sort of neighborhood of, of young Nepalis looking for work abroad. Um, a lot of that is done uh, illegally through, through brokers who arrange some of these contracts. Um, but to me, to understand this phenomenon, I really had to, to move around quite a bit. Um, and it just made me realize how difficult it is to, to understand some of these flows conceptually, but also just really uh, it showed to me some of the, the great lengths that these workers went through uh, to make it to these conflict zones and the amount of work that they did simply to go to war um, in it as itself was, was fascinating to me. I'll just, just also point out that one of the important things here too, is that each of these steps as these Nepalis, particularly the ones who aren't going legally to Afghanistan, as they move to India, as they, uh, oftentimes from India, they'll go to Dubai, from Dubai to Afghanistan. They're often relying on, um, brokers and on uh, corrupt government officials to, to get them visas, to get them the contracts, to get them the permissions. Uh, so the other thing that uh, really shapes the political economy of all this is every, every step along the way, a lot of these Nepalis are becoming more and more indebted. 
Um, so they end up arriving in Afghanistan or Iraq with a large amount of debt um, and oftentimes have to work for a year just to pay off that debt before they even uh, can really start sending money home. So the process, the process itself creates this dependence that, uh, that helps uh, perpetuate a lot of the uh, poor labor conditions and, and the exploitation that we see. Yeah, that's a this is a story that's not unfamiliar to people who are familiar with labor migration to places like uh, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, uh, that have long kind of pulled people, you know, from South Asia, Central Asia, as well as Southeast Asia, like the Philippines, into labor work. So, I was curious how similar or how different is the process of these workers going to Afghanistan to, say, going to, uh, was it the Emirates that's having the World Cup that has recently had so much uh, attention drawn to it for some of the condition of the laborers that uh, are constructing the stadiums? Yep. Um, so there are a lot of, of parallels that are I find quite interesting. I think there are some differences. Uh, first of all, the fact that um, this is really building upon a lot of colonial practices that particularly the British used when they were in Afghanistan. One of the things I point to in the book is the ways in which um, when the British Empire invaded Afghanistan uh, and in the first three Anglo-Afghan wars, you had uh, Nepalis who fought in those wars. So one of the things we have is we have sort of this tradition, particularly of, of Nepalis moving towards the, these conflict zones. Um, and with that, there uh, and t- connected to it, of course, is the the martial race theory that both uh, helps, I would say, indenture Nepalis to these conflict. But at the same time, Nepalis are also using um, some of these theories to better market themselves and, and make make sure, for example, that they receive higher average wages than, say, Bangladeshis or Sri Lankans who might be in, the, in a similar place. Um, I would also say that this it creates some very pressing questions about human rights and international legal systems, because on one level, there are uh, U.S. laws that are meant to safeguard workers that are working essentially for American government dollars. And Almost everybody I interviewed was working um, not directly, but indirectly for the U.S. government in some ways. So there's a U.S. Defense Base Act, which was set up during uh, which was really meant for uh, U.S. civilians working in Germany under the Marshall Plan, but is still in effect and is meant to protect contractors and imply, uh, um, supply them with a certain amount of insurance. Um one of the things that I found in, in tracking down uh, over a dozen uh, of these workers, mostly from Nepal, but also India and Turkey, who had been injured, was trying to find what sort of legal protections they had. Um, and the answer is that they have some, but they really had uh, difficulty accessing uh, some of those legal rights. Um, and so part of the story I tell on in a couple of these cases is um, how some of these workers try to uh, get compensation, for example, for injuries um, and things like that. Yeah, so and the Nepalese are only one of the groups that you discuss in the book. You also discuss, uh, to a certain degree, and, and visited uh, Georgians and, and Turks. So what is the difference between the kind of labor that 
the Georgians and the Turks were doing in Afghanistan and maybe some of the difference between their experience and in labor movements. Because one of the things that struck me is, you know, while you hear a lot about uh, these labor flows and migratory labor flows involving the Nepalese and Indians and other groups, it's less common to hear, or at least you don't ever usually hear about Turks making the same kind of migration. So what's their place in this story? So one of the things that I'm trying to do, perhaps as a secondary uh, goal in this book, is one of the things I find myself very frustrated by back here in the United States now is sort of simple narratives about the war in Afghanistan, that it's this war between the U.S. and and between the Taliban, um, this sort of very simple binary that I think have been, compl- have been complicated by it with some great books like uh, Anand Gopal's No Good Men Among the Living, um, which really sort of shows the complexities of the, the war there. Um, one of the complexities, though, that I think hasn't been studied as much is all, are all these other countries that are involved in the war in Afghanistan. Um, you have uh, somewhere in the ballpark of, of 75 countries have, have sent either soldiers or civilians to do um, work in Afghanistan, which is more countries than were actually involved in World War II. So you've got most of the countries on the planet are sending some sort of representation to Afghanistan for this conflict. And so for me, one of the questions was, um, how did those different uh, people get there? And, and what were the different trajectories that their different countries were on? So one of the things that I found fascinating about Georgia was, um, Georgia really came to Afghanistan after going to Iraq first. And uh, Georgia, for a while, on a per capita basis, was contributing more t- troops to the U- U.S.'s effort there um, than anyone else. And of course, part of that was an attempt by the Georgian government to deepen its ties with the United States and with NATO. Um, in the hopes that this would eventually get them NATO membership and at the very least um, get them trained and supplied by the U.S. military. Um, So what happens is you've got a group of these uh, Georgian soldiers who are getting deployed to Iraq, um, going through training with the U.S. military. Um, And then in 2008, of course, Russia invades Georgia and all of these troops get pulled back. Um, Georgia gets very soundly defeated by Russia, um, and none of Georgia's Western allies really step up. Um, and in the course of that time though, while all those Georgians were in, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, they were interacting with contractors and they were hearing about jobs. Um, and so a lot of the Georgian soldiers who went to Afghanistan originally then returned as contractors. And pretty soon you have uh, you have Georgians leaving directly from uh, the the uh, Georgian military um, to go into contracting. So the entire strategy there sort of backfires and uh, Georgia ends up depleting its army from a lot of its well-trained soldiers um, to join these other uh, other um, uh, contracting companies. Uh, On the Turkish side, you have something similar where. Um, Turkey, particularly in the 2000s, has a bit of an economic slump. Um, there's a lot of construction contracting going on uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And there's a real sense that um, hiring U.S. or Western European contractors is too expensive. Um, but 
there's not a lot of trust in uh, Pakistani or Egyptian contractors who do a lot of construction um, in the area for other uh, other groups. So all of a sudden, uh, Turkey, with its ties to NATO, um, with a uh, fairly sizable military industrial complex there, um, and at a time where Economically speaking, a lot of these construction companies were looking outside of Turkey for other places to, to work. Um, it became sort of a, a perfect moment for, for the Turks to um, enter into the fray. Um, particularly if you moving back to the Georgians just for a second, and one of the other arguments that I'm, I'm making in the book, too, is the way in which all of these categories are uh, racialized and the ways in which um, threat is uh, racialized and and uh, capitalized. So one of the things that you find is quite oftentimes, or most of the time, the first line of defense at these compounds um, would be local Afghans. Um, the next line is some sort of um, Asian group, usually Nepalis. And then after that, you might get some sort of um, white, but not really Western uh, groups, such as Serbs or Georgians. Um, and then finally, the, your inner line of defense is Western white contractors, um, European, South, white South Africans, Americans. Um, and of course, uh, when you look at that movement from the outermost wall to the innermost wall, the danger um, is at its greatest on the outside and then decreases drastically on the inside. But then there's an inverse relationship with how much those, those bodies are actually being paid with those on the outside um, making the most amount, uh, the least amount of money, excuse me, and then consequently with every step in, um, as the threat decreases, the amount of compensation actually increases. Um, and so these are some of those, those trends and those um, pieces of the way in which the United States is organizing its its war efforts that I think, again, we haven't we thought about, talked about enough. Um, and a lot of the book I, I've spent trying to explore some of those issues. Why do you think this uh, racial uh, chain is structured the way it is? Do you think it's a, an overt attempt uh, to kind of create a hierarchy or do you think it's the result of uh, pay pressures or training or, or what, why do you think this, this condition obtains? I mean, I think this is uh, post-colonial structural inequalities. I think one of the things that I point to with Nepal, I try to point to the way in which this, uh, the image of the Gurkha has this very deep history of a oriental body that is being used by the West to do its military work and this image of the brave Gurkha. But the interesting thing for me is that image of the brave Gurkha is it's an image that actually most Americans aren't that familiar with, um, whereas most British uh, people and the British military in particular are incredibly familiar with it. So the United States has sort of inherited this uh, post-colonial approach uh, to racializing military labor without even realizing that it's doing it and certainly without re reflecting upon it while it's happening. Um, and, and then in the meantime, with poverty and uh, the structural inequalities of how labor migrations flow, um, it then turns out that those from the, the poorest countries are the easiest to exploit and the ones that can be paid the least. Um, and, and thus the cycle continues. 
So why would these contractors <clears throat> agree to, especially the, the higher skilled ones, agree to go to Afghanistan? You mentioned the Georgian uh, veterans who leave the Georgian military, um, and then, of course, the retired Gurkhas who are receiving a pension. What, what motivates them to leave kind of the cushy position of living on their pension or, you know, the uh, retirement or constant, you know, reliable pay that you get and prestige from a Georgian uh, the Georgian military to kind of cast your lot in the conflict of Afghanistan? Well, uh, I mean, the, the answer is always on, on one level money. Um, and I also, I don't think, uh, I wouldn't say that your, your average uh, Georgian who served in the military is particularly well off. So really poverty dr- drives a lot of this. Um, but the other thing that happens, and I look at this particularly in the case of Nepal, is the extent to which uh, the accounts of those that go to Afghanistan or Iraq are valorized and held up. So quite oftentimes you hear about the young man who goes off to Afghanistan and works for three or four years and saves money and returns home and gets married and opens up a store um, and how he sort of lives this great successful lifestyle. Um, and you don't hear the story about the young Nepali who goes over deeply in debt and um, falls further in debt and is then unable to um, actually save any money there or, uh, and eventually perhaps gets injured or exploited in some ways. And one of the, the things that happens there, I think, is it partially... Uh, natural human instinct and and uh but partially it has to do with the the shame of that failure so when you're in nepal and when you're in india and turkey as well these stories of success circulate very readily um everybody's heard of somebody um who's been successful whereas these stories about failure do not circulate in the same way um and instead those are the stories that are shameful and are buried um, and are not not uh, not discussed widely, um, and so that certainly is one of the things that that leads this uh, cycle to continue. And is there any way of telling who will be successful or who won't, or or maybe are there more reliable winners from the Nepalese side about this, or is it kind of random? Um, that's an interesting question, and I'll actually flip over to one of my later chapters because I also talk a little bit about Afghan contractors who end up um, uh, in the United States on the SIV program, which provided uh, visas, particularly for translators, but also for other um, Afghan contractors who worked in the U.S. Um, and one of the things that I, I found that was interesting there was a lot of Afghan lawyers, um, Afghans who worked in higher level administrative positions at the Afghan embassy, um, all took advantage of this program and have now have uh, immigrated to the United States. Um, and a lot of them have really struggled um, in part because they don't have much in savings and uh, they don't uh, they come to Afghanistan. They come to the United States with. Um, one of the uh, gentlemen I interview has a PhD from Iran and a BA from Pakistan, and yet none, none of those degrees are recognized in the United States. So they come from these positions of, of prestige, um, and then they end up living uh, fairly impoverished in the United States. 
Um, and yet the, the one person I point to who actually I think is, is done much better was sort of a lower level uh, logistics guy um, who worked for a, an NGO that was funded by uh, with U.S. government dollars. Um, and, and maybe it was just his approach, but as a logistics person, he was a, a bit of a wheeler and dealer and he was good at making uh, deals and he started a small cell phone business and he was very good at sort of connecting with other Afghans in the community and moving around. Um, and I would say there's something similar to that actually with um, the Afghans uh, or with the Nepalis, excuse me, um, uh, who returned to Nepal. Um, it's oftentimes not actually the ones with very rigid military backgrounds um, oftentimes, uh, those uh, individuals who are, if they tend to sort of follow orders, um, are not going to be able to to move from one job to another um, and actually make something. Uh, they're more likely to get trapped in these uh, much more exploitative conditions. Um, and I think it's sometimes these uh, individuals who are more creative uh, and, and uh, more able to to move between positions that actually benefit in the long run. Yeah. So another question that I had reading the book is, what are the source of all of these contracts? Um, maybe two kind of questions. First, what are the source for all these contracts? Where do they where do they come from? And then the other kind of question, which you hint at the book and sometimes kind of come at directly at the book, is it seems like, you know, in addition to there being somewhat of a hierarchy in the uh, contracting realm. There also seems to be a, a tangible difference between at least the Turks and the Nepalese in the sense that sometimes it seems like the Turks are the contract ors, really, meaning they themselves hold the contract. And the Nepalese always seem to be, you know, writing on the contract uh, as employees. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about those two things. One, where, where do these contracts come from? And, and who, you know, are some of these third country people them actually doing some of the contracting themselves? Yeah. So um, particularly for your first question about where do these come? Well, this is really one of those things that I think uh, U.S. citizens don't understand about um, how, how their government works. And I would point to a, a book by Alison Booth called One Nation Under Contract that talks about the ways in which um, the U.S. government now contracts out uh, the vast majority of the work that it does. Um, and so the Department of Defense every year, 50% of its budget is directly contracted before it even really hits the Department of Defense's hands. The other 50%, a lot of that is actually contracted out later on. Um, but the result of this is when the United States had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, they were paying 150,000 contractors. Um, and that ratio of one uh, soldier for 1.5 contractors has actually gotten uh, significantly skewed in recent years as the number of uh, U.S. military has decreased and the number of contractors has not decreased as quickly. So right now it's somewhere in the ballpark of for every one soldier, in U.S. soldier in Afghanistan, there are three paid uh, U.S. contractors now, um, which is the highest ratio of any war the United States has, has ever been in um, and is a really drastic increase from, say, World War II. Um, and so a lot of this money is coming from Department of Defense contracts. But I also look at contractors who uh, were making money off of USAID, uh, contractors who are working for other smaller branches like uh, the Department of State, um, 
DEA, groups like that. Um, so, and one of the things that I try to do in this book is really by approaching it from a bottom up perspective. Um, a lot of the political science around this has sort of looked at, well, this is where uh, Department of Defense funding goes. This is where State Department funding goes. From, from a bottom up uh, contractor point of view, it doesn't really matter where the money is coming from. Um, what matters is the conditions of the job and what the job entails, how much it pays, et cetera, et cetera. So oftentimes the uh, contractors I interviewed, the Nepalis, weren't actually really sure exactly where those contracts were coming from. And it, it, it didn't really matter that much to them. Um, but the other thing that you point to, which is a, is a very good point, is most of this money actually then uh, that gets contracted out to large firms like, say, um, DynCorp or KBR – um, what those firms do almost instantly, usually, is then they contract out those funds. Um, and I talked to contractors who uh, were contracting for contracting for or subcontractors for subcontractors were subcontractors, sometimes six contracts down. Um, and of course, there's overhead costs at each of those uh, as each of those contracts is subcontracted. So the money gets a little bit less and a little bit less as it goes down. Um, so this creates a uh, contracting hierarchy um, that is a question of how close to you are you to sort of the, the source of those initial funds. And the closer you are, the more likely you are to have insurance and to have some sort of, of protection um, if something happens to you, though that's not always the case. Um, but it also then creates a uh, – it maps onto a, um, a hierarchy that is based upon – um, race and socioeconomic status, where quite oftentimes you have uh, the Afghans and the South Asians are very much at the bottom of the the bottom of the hierarchy, um, and then you have other groups like the Turks and the Georgians in the middle, with the Western Europeans uh, towards the top, um, and this creates uh, a good deal of resentment too, because I interviewed, for example. Um, some Nepali uh, micro hydro engineers who were doing some engineering projects in Afghanistan. And they oftentimes, uh, the Westerners would sort of lump them in with the other Nepalis. Um, and uh, they, they greatly resented being lumped in with other of the uh, private security contractors because they were well-educated, upper-class uh, Nepalis who had uh, engineering skills. Um, and yet the way the hierarchy worked, oftentimes they would be sort of in included with that group. Um, so it's really the the structure of how the funding works sort of sets the conditions that then allows for these other forms of hierarchy to to scaffold on um, and to to reinforce themselves. You mentioned that Turkey, one of the appeals for Turkey was the fact that it was a NATO member. And you indirectly mentioned several times in the book about Maybe how and you mentioned in, here in this interview about the Georgians moving from Iraq to Afghanistan. So how much does it does the interface with other campaigns matter? I mean, I remember, for example, uh, a not small contingent of some of the kind of logistical contractors uh, at the at Camp Phoenix, where I was stationed in Afghanistan, came from um, the Balkans and themselves had had contracting contacts with uh, NATO forces there. And I, I believe that's how they kind of got on to the whole ship. So how fungible over different theaters and areas of operations are these uh, these contracting vehicles and contracting individuals? 
completely fungible. I mean, and this is one of the, I think the lessons of when we view this uh, as we take that simple story of the American war in Afghanistan and try to view it in isolation. Um, that's sort of a, a reification that uh, is not actually how how this is experienced on the ground. A lot of these private security contractors had spent time in the Balkans before moving to Iraq. And really, the U.S. surge in Iraq meant that most of the contractors I spoke with were there in the early 2000s. And then with Obama's surge in Afghanistan, a lot of those uh, contractors went to um, Afghanistan after being in Iraq and, and now they've gone on elsewhere. I taught, I've talked with, uh, um, contractors who went on to, uh, Sudan contractors who went on to CAR. Um, there's, uh, apparently a good uh, size contingent of contractors in Yemen now. Um, and as, and in addition to that, I talked to, um, some other odd ways that this sort of ties into, um, ties in with other forms of uh, militarized labor. And so one of the odd uh, interviews I, I sort of end with is um, the story of a small group of Nepalis who go on to work in Russia as bodyguards for a corrupt oligarch um, and their experience there. But their, their time in Afghanistan was seen as as training for this. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I really try to think about um, in the book is also then what are the, the future repercussions of this? And while um, the United States, I think, oftentimes argues that, well, this approach saves American lives and it's more effective because of the um, neoliberalization of the market. And this is simply uh, just a way of, uh, of efficient use of labor. Um, in a re very real way, what this also does is on a global level, it justifies the use of these types of contractors. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to see increasingly countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like Russia, um, relying on similar forms of, um, of contracting that have even uh, fewer protections in terms of human rights and in terms of uh, protecting uh, workers from exploitation. Um, and that, that, I think, is uh, something we should all be worried about. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Originally, I think kind of the justification for the use of contractors in the American military was linked to the rise of the volunteer force and, you know, the decrease in personnel power. So you, you know, the Army, for example, used to have barbers and used to have laundry specialists and used to have construction workers and basically used to have all these personnel that were soldiers and you know as as the draft ended as the military strength reduction you know kind of hit they started contracting these out and then you know it seems like the contracting sometimes doesn't stop uh, i even remember internal security and uh, the kind of camp compound around baghdad which was made up of a series of camps was uh, conducted by kind of they were a swahili speaking peoples i don't know if they were soldiers from Tanzania or where they were. But I mean, to be honest with you, I, I don't, I, I was always a little nervous about that because I, I'm not sure how much I trust the military competence of some of the armies in Africa. And so it seems strange to me as a soldier that they, we would be relying on them for internal security. But, you know, it's, you raise an interesting point, especially with the Russian oligarch story at the end of the book, so these places like the Central African Republic, South Sudan, Siberia are certainly not places where American 
contracting vehicles are, are going in, right? I mean, they're not going to Syria after all. So how, how does this leak and bleed out happen? Like what is, what's the, how, how do they get to these different places? Well, I, the, the, uh, what happens is a lot of these companies uh, either will directly move or what happens more commonly actually is these companies spin off smaller companies that then move and then the contractors essentially go with them. So there's been attempts to, to better regulate and shut down some of the particularly the private security contracting companies. But the, the thing about that is oftentimes a small private security contracting company the infrastructure it has is, is tiny. It can be an office in Dubai with a laptop, right? Because what you're doing is you're purchasing weapons on the ground and then you're uh, deploying labor to use those weapons. So one of the things that we see, particularly in uh, earlier versions of this with, the, with Sandline, for example, um, you've got these companies that, that might be sort of, quote, shut down and, and then they immediately sort of pack pop back up. So I think on one level, it's particularly from the top, it's sort of difficult to see how this type of contracting might end up in a place like Syria, um, which doesn't have the the same U.S. contracting companies uh, that we see in Afghanistan. But at the same time, it's a lot of the individuals who are going off and setting up similar businesses and protecting U.N. compounds and protecting other places like that, Um, or potentially as this spins into places like Russia, um, private uh, security firms can morph into private militias um, instantly. I mean, they're conceptually incredibly similar. Um, so I think we're going to see more of that that going forward. And and certainly when you talk to um, the workers themselves, um, when they're getting hired to do a very similar job, um, it doesn't really matter whether you're uh, uh, working for uh, USAID or whether you're working for a Russian oligarch, um, particularly when they have the same brokers who get them those jobs. It looks very similar uh, from, from the bottom up perspective. Well, I think we definitely saw that in places like the Crimea where and, and, and in Syria as well, where what is it? It's the Wagner Institute or Wagner Foundation is the is a, kind of like a you know, the DynCorp Blackwater of Russia, but even more integrated. You know, I think that the Russian government even awards the military medals uh, for different actions on the battlefield, uh, which, which you know, is interesting. I, I wonder, this is outside the scope of anthropology or your book, but I wonder um, what you think about this. I wonder if this is maybe a sign of uh, changing geopolitical era, maybe of, you know, great power competition in the sense that, um, you mentioned in your book, this is a new way of doing war, but in some ways it kind of strikes me as a very old way of doing war. You know, Machiavelli and the prince is always warning about the condottieri and how you shouldn't rely on mercenaries. The British, of course, had the, famously had the Hessians in the United States during, or the colonies of the time during the American Revolution. So it seems to me, you know, and, and, and I wonder what, what you would think about this. Um, and, you know, in a, in a world where there's not as much hegemonic geopolitical control in a place where you might have more Crimeas and Syrias that maybe, you know, this is uh, kind of coming into its own. Yeah. And I, I, I there, Sean McFate wrote a great book where he talks about contracting from more on the Western side of things then he refers to this as neo-medievalism. And I think there's some elements there that, I, that I, I agree with. But at the same time, I think I'd push back a little bit and say, in some ways, what's happening 
um, is has changed in terms of the scope and time and space, particularly because a lot of the jobs are being found over the internet and uh, individuals are being deployed so quickly. Um, you're creating these contracting militias uh, or contracting firms where individuals have very little tie to each other and become much more immediately disposable than I think they have been in past iterations. Um, and you see this, and I tell several stories of contractors who are injured uh, on the job or, or, or during attacks, and, and they're quite disposable to companies. Companies get rid of them sort of instantly, which is quite, quite different than earlier forms we see where, where militias are more these organized bands with some sort of kinship element oftentimes integrated into them. Um, so I, I, I do think that this is, is something somewhat new, even if it does have some of these older um, repercussions. The other thing that I don't get into directly, but I might, um, but I do think is in the book subtly, is also the extent to which this it, we, appears new to us because we don't have a good frame for understanding contracting. Um, and here's some of my frustration with anthropology, but also with a lot of the other um, uh, disciplines that look at conflict and look at war, where um, most of the writing that's being done about contracting and about the organization of military labor is done by political scientists these days. Um, and, and a lot of it's really interesting. Um, but a lot of that political science uh, analysis is looking at U.S. government documents. It's looking at budgeting allocations. It's looking sort of comparatively between countries. Um, and it's not really looking at the lived experience of contracting. Um, flip that around, anthropologists, we're, we're good at ethnography. We're look at, good at looking at the lived experience of, of groups of people. Um, but we're not look good at looking at groups that move around, groups that are hard to pin down. Um, we're good at sitting in sort of villages and doing small neighborhood studies. Um, so the idea of who should be telling the story, who should be analyzing contractors, I, I think the current construction of our academy, we don't have a, a good answer to that. And I think what I ended up writing is primarily an anthropological account, but something that's much more uh, interdisciplinary than what I would have written when I was uh, a, a younger anthropologist. Um, and so I think we need to be thinking um, creatively, both as academics and as uh, citizens of the world, when we uh, look at these practices and, and try to understand them better, um, and we need to be better at sort of asking ourselves, okay, what's outside of the, the frame of, that we're comfortable with? Um, and I think once we start bending our, ourselves conceptually and methodologically, there's actually a lot more going on um, that maybe has been going on for a while that we just weren't necessarily entirely uh, attuned to. I think that's true. But one of the things I think that might and I certainly agree with, with, with the point about anthropology. One of the things that I think may, might make it difficult for anthropologists as, as individuals to do that, however, I think is anthropologists are usually at a fairly strong remove from uh, conflict, maybe in a way. You know, anthropologists like talking about conflict and that kind of thing, but in terms of people who have uh, had involvement in conflict, um, you know, usually people are not going to war zones to conduct field work like you did, or they're not serving in the military or are not from 
uh, families that have individuals who serve. So it, it seems to me sometimes when I encounter anthropologists writing about the military, you know, the, all the tools are there, but often um, sometimes the understanding is not really there. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think what I'm actually advocating for is for anthropologists to think more creatively about ha- how we look at particularly at conflict. So much of what we do is sort of might look at post-conflict societies, but it doesn't look at the mechanisms around ongoing conflicts. And so I don't think that necessarily, I'm not, I'm not advocating for uh, embedding with the military per se, but I think even my example before of going to Pahar Ganj, um, in Delhi and uh, spending time with these youths who are on their way towards conflict. Um, it's just the type of study that I think a lot of anthropologists um, wouldn't think of um, just because it's it's a little bit outside of our comfort, comfort zone um, at this moment. But I, I think we've got the tools for it. We just need to think a little more creatively about how we uh, understand um, and how we how methodologically we can work in these places. I mean, if you think about um, how much of the the global population is living in a conflict zone right now, um, to say anthropologists just can't go to conflict zones, then cuts out a huge chunk of the world's population, which I think is a real loss. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's interesting because there also used to be a, a rather robust study of of conflict within anthropology, and maybe there's kind of a tendency to revive some of the classical interests of anthropology and kinship and and structure, and so maybe that will uh, hearken for you know more of this in the future. But you know, I, I'm sure you know we both know. Uh, individuals. I'm thinking of one who did, you know, psychoanalytic work among the Pashtun who, you know, just simply couldn't get any funding because nobody was going to give him money to, to go to, to go to Afghanistan in the conflict. And I, yeah, I totally agree. And it's a real structural issue because I think for a lot of graduate programs, if we were sending out graduate students into the field, would you rather send them to places that are safe and stable or send them to dangerous places? I mean, you're taking a real risk um, to send them to, to more dangerous places. So I think, I think there's a certain logic uh, to where we've ended up, but I I think we could be thinking more creatively about uh, how we work around that logic, I guess. So along those lines, one of the questions I had for you personally, I guess maybe to maybe our second to last question here, because I'd like to hear what your future plans are. So, but before that, one of the things I was, I was, I was wondering about is logistically, how did your field work uh, turn out? How, what kind of support were you able to get and, um, and what, what materially enabled you to, to realize this project? Well, I think uh, pointing to that, I, I got incredibly lucky where I got funding um, from uh, Fulbright to do a multi-country um, study, but I also got smaller grants from Goethe Henkel um, Institute in Germany and also the American Institute of Afghanistan Studies. So to your point, um, the bulk of my funding came from Fulbright and Fulbright says when you're on a Fulbright, you can't go to Afghanistan or other insecure places. So I was able to sort of uh, piece together other funding to pay for the Afghanistan part of it. But I think the the, the funding question speaks directly to, um, uh, to the structural issues that sort of prevent us from going abroad. Because um, if I hadn't had those various sources of funding, um, I, I don't think uh, I would have been able to do this study. Um, because again, I think the way that the entire structure of anthropology and the funding mechanisms 
Um, they are much more inclined to support studies in peaceful areas um, that are static, right? Um, none of these uh, grants really wanted me to move around very much, and yet I realized that it was it was imperative for me to to move around. Um, in terms of uh, how I did the research itself, really, I, I got very lucky. Um, I used uh, I um, was hosted by Social Science Baja in Kathmandu, which is a research uh, organization that looks a lot at migration. Um, and they helped me on the Nepali end of things. I then was a scholar in residence at Delhi University, um, which helped me uh, in Delhi get a lot of different contacts. Um, and by that point, um, a lot of the contractors I knew had contacts in Turkey. And so I went on to Turkey and Georgia using those contacts in particular. Um, but I- I'll say two of the things that were really helpful here is um, – the fact that a lot of these contractors were fairly aware of the fact that their stories were not told um, and that their experiences weren't reflected in the media um, and that when they came home to their families, their families didn't really have a sense of where they had been or what they had been doing. Um, So I would say compared to some of the other studies that I have done earlier in my career, um, this uh, the, the people I interviewed were, um, incredibly gracious and incredibly eager to share their stories with me. Um, so I, I had a lot of uh, long nights uh, talking about Afghanistan. And I think for them, because I, I had lived previously in Afghanistan for five years, oftentimes I was sort of the first person who came to their home who uh, had been in Afghanistan and could relate to some of those experiences. So I, I talked jokingly, but I think it was sort of nice where uh, one of the men I interviewed, I, I sat down to begin an interview with him, and he immediately uh, called in all of his children and forced them to sit, <laughs> and they appeared very bored, um, uh, forced them to sit during the interview, uh, I think in part because it was uh, he was saying, see, look, this American's interested in what I did in Afghanistan. Why aren't you interested in what I did in Afghanistan? Um so I had a I had a lot of experiences like that over the course of of this, um, but I think um, the other thing is I, I'm an anthropologist who's fairly established in my career, and I've I've published other things before, and I would say that this uh, project was a real risk, um, and I think back to sort of the structures, particularly for graduate students. Um, I, I don't think uh, we, we enable our graduate students to take uh, r- the risks to do really sort of innovative, creative studies. Um, and I was able to do this just because I have a full-time position and I was on sabbatical. And if this had all gone haywire and it just hadn't worked out, I, it wouldn't have been uh, devastating for me. Um, but back to, to sort of thinking about how we support these types of studies, I think we do need to be thinking um, how we can encourage uh, younger anthropologists to to think along uh, similar methodologically creative lines. Yeah, I mean, this is nothing related to conflict zone, but I, um, you know, I had um, originally at BU wanted to do work in Mauritania looking at um, Islamic law among the Bedouin, which is a question that you think we would have explored, but Islamic law and stateless societies is actually something that we don't really have any literature on. And, um, you know, we looked at, Islamic law in Morocco, Islamic law in courts in Egypt, and even in England, but but not as much not as much outside. And 
I was uh, I was told no by Wintergren because basically what I, I would need to do is exploratory ethnography. And they said, well, we don't do that anymore. It's like, well, there's no literature written on Mauritania. So <laughs> you have to do exploratory ethnography there. No one's done any work there, at least not in English. So but um, but so that, that, that's getting that complaint out of my system. Noah, what are you uh, what is your what do you have any projects in the hopper? What, what's coming up next? I do. So I'm continuing to follow up on uh, some of these private security contractors. And I actually just got back from Nepal where I had a uh, book talk, but I also met with a lot of uh, um, my friends and uh, the people who are involved in this project over there. Um, But I am starting to look. uh, One of the interesting things that I bumped into um, that snuck up on me was um, quite a few of the private security contractors I interviewed um, were also involved at different moments in landmine clearance operations. Um, and if you look at the various uh, organizations around the globe that do landmine clearance, uh, they're very interesting uh, as in terms of asking ourselves what category do they belo- belong to. Landmine clearance organizations uh, – really resemble development NGOs in some ways, but they also resemble uh, private military units in other ways. There's a, a, a lot of training and hierarchy in them. Um, and so it's not really surprising that, that these individuals move from private security to landmine clearance. Um, so I'm starting to look at just the different ways that labor is organized around landmine clearance uh, and uh, the, the, what that means. Um, and of course, uh, Nepal has a significant population of, uh, of people who have worked in landmine clearance who are now working elsewhere, um, like West Africa. Um, but Afghanistan does as well. And so does, uh, Sri Lanka. So I'm looking at, uh, more comparatively at how landmine clearance is done and, and trying again to look at, um, military labor, which is something I think anthropologists have done a nice job of looking at, uh, in the American sense. Um, but not uh, done uh, as effective a job at looking in the non-Western sense and looking at these sort of alternative forms of, of military labor. Um, so that's what I'm looking at now. Well, that's great. Well, hopefully you'll have to let us know when that project is uh, done, and we'll be happy to have you back on the, back on the program. Terrific, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for listening to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast on the New Books Network.